Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Grab your Bible, find a Romans 8 in your New Testament. I wonder how many of you have had this kind of an experience before? How many of you have you've sent a text message to someone? and the text message was misinterpreted, and now someone's mad at you. They're upset because of one thing that you said that the thing that they think you said isn't what you meant at all. I mean, you've been there? All of us have. You've been on the other end of it, too. You've received a message, and you've read into that message something that was never intended, and now you're furious, you're upset, your whole world is turned upside down. Our text, where we are this morning in Romans 8, as we continue making our way to the end of Romans 8, this is one of the places where one of those interpretive problems, without the emojis, without interpreting GIFs, or is it GIFs, or is it GIFs? We debated all week and we couldn't settle it. So how many GIFs and how many GIFs? Okay, it's GIFs. Without gifts and emojis and all caps with like four exclamation points, we still, we have this interpretive problem when we come to this part of the text. And I want want you to see what I mean. It's in Romans 8, verse 28, and I think you'll see it pretty quickly. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think Romans 8, 28 may be one of the most, at least top three most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. It's certainly probably the most uh, known verse in chapter 8, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and at the same time, one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted verses in the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. It continues, the misinterpretation of this text. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? That's a good question. We'll stop there and then work our way to what Paul's response is. And you can see we've reached the part of our ride in Romans 8 where now we have a bunch of lightning rod theological terms, like the big F word is there, foreknowledge. And I had a pastor friend give this really, really good advice. He cautioned, don't turn a text of comfort into a text of controversy. I think it's huge. I think it's really important because we have this tendency to forget where we are in this. Romans 8 has been all about your identity in Christ. If you're in Christ, this is who you are and what your place is with God. And is this reassuring comforting text helping us to remember who we are in Christ and what good things there are for us and the reason Paul felt that we needed this kind of reassurance is because we all suffer we all we all suffer broken hearts and broken dreams we suffer physically and emotionally we suffer with our own struggle to sin and when we suffer you know this I know this when we suffer we tend to lose our compass that tells us which way to go and who we are and what is true and what is right about us. And when we lose those things, we begin to lose hope and to turn to despair. And so Paul knows this and he writes, knowing personally that as humans and as Christians, we all go through seasons of suffering. It is just a part of life in a sin-marked, broken world. 
And if you've been tracking with this the last several weeks, you see how Paul has just been building up and reminding and reminding and exhorting and encouraging and even giving permission to be real about our feelings and about our suffering and our problems and our difficulties, to be honest about those things before God, to lament. And then in the middle of all the comforting, reassuring words, he says, foreknew and predestined and conformed. And we have this temptation in us, and I think a lot of people make this mistake to then just isolate a few lines from the text to pull them off of the pages and turn these into a text of controversy and not treat them in the way that Paul wanted them to be treated as a text of comfort to us, to reassure us of who we are in Christ. And the thing that you find here is that real comfort for real troubles doesn't come by just trying to feel better. That God doesn't look down and say, I can see you're going through some stuff. I just need you to feel better. <laughs> I, I know life is really, really, really hard and everything's falling apart in your life, but you need to buck up. You, you need to, to put on a brave face and to feel better. That's what I expect of you. Nowhere in the Bible do we get this expectation that we're to downplay the realities of the brokenness of this world, but instead we're invited to be real about the troubles that we have. And here, when you see this, God doesn't comfort with platitudes. God comforts with declarations of truth. He, he declarations by speaking truth into your life about him, about his plans for you. And I've heard this said, and I agree with it, that sound doctrine has the ability to serenade and to soothe us in our suffering. You hear that? And that sound doctrine has the ability to serenade and to soothe us in our suffering. And the reason is because only by knowing truth, really understanding what's true about God, about ourselves, about the world, only by really having a picture of what is real and what is true may we begin to find our bearings and find our way through pain and through troubles. I think you can see that. And so let's do this. As we look at this text and seek understanding, let's do so in exactly the kind of context and with the intent that it has for us to invite it to bring comfort to us in the middle of suffering, in the middle of disappointment or confusion or frustration or whatever questions that you may have. So starting with verse 28, let's try to make some sense and have a clear picture of what the promise is for us. Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 says this. Out, well, first, out of context, I think you probably already know what it does. When, when this verse is read out of context, something like, we know God causes all things to work together for people who love him, and we have this in our mind now, if I love God or if I have faith in God, then my life will be an easy life. I will have nothing but good days. I will have no troubles. It will be, certainly be more predictable and easier if I only am a person who has faith in God. And there's a, a false theology rooted there. It's rooted in that idea. We don't teach that here. It's taught out there that if only I can muster up enough love and faith in God, then he will take care of all of the troubles and I will never experience them. He'll just brush them away and give me health, wealth, life of prosperity and all of those good things. That's not what this says. Like you can't take this verse or any other verse and just slap them on a plaque and, and make them mean whatever you want them to mean. We read them here in context, and we find it's one of the most powerful, beautiful, and reassuring verses in the Bible, and yet I, I groan and sometimes I cringe when people say it because it's almost like they take it and they just dump it out like a, a magic happy pill for people to take. 
that suddenly if they just will read this verse or quote this verse, everything will go well for them and they won't have the bad feelings anymore. And maybe it's because we've misunderstood the, the text message of Romans 8, 28. So why have we done that? Well, maybe we've done it because we've so highlighted and circled and underlined the word good that we've ignored the word purpose that's also in that verse. And so what I want to do is look at from the end going forward, I want to look at, at or going to the beginning, I want to look at what is the purpose that God has for you and how does that then bring some color or definition to the word good. Here's the purpose. All of it, all of Romans 8 has been about one thing. It's been about salvation. Somebody say salvation. The whole thing has been about reassurance of your salvation. Romans uh, 1 through 6, it's about sin, it's about consequences, it's about God's perfect plan for dealing with the destructiveness of sin in your life. It's about all of that. It's about how God has this, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that he reaches out to you through Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus for you that invites you in, it calls you in to his saving purpose in your life. It calls you into him and nothing else. Chapter 7, after talking about sin and destruction and salvation, Paul goes, all of this is wonderful, but I struggle. I struggle so much. Sometimes I can't do the right thing even when I know it's right in front of me. I still can't do it. And it culminates in this big explosion where the dam of his emotions breaks through and says, wretched man that I am, and you and I all have wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, moments in our life. And it's in those moments, I think, that we wonder most and we fear most about our place with God and about his love for us and about his plan or his purpose for my life. Is it actually true? Is it actually good? Have I believed in the wrong thing? Have I put my faith in something that is not worth it? And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying salvation from start to finish, from start to finish is a work of love from God, and he's working it out in your life now. Salvation from start to finish is a work of love, attentive, steadfast, never-ending love from God in your life, and he's working it out even now. Philippians 1.6 says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began, somebody say began, began, means it's not completed yet, he's still working. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus returns. He's still working in your life. And you can begin to see that there is a, from purpose back to good, there's a definition being painted of what good is in Romans 8, 28, which is good for us that we're getting some, some pointed direction, some compass on good, because a lot of times life doesn't feel good. It's not good. In life, when it's not good, it causes us to go, well, I I'm really confused about what good is supposed to mean because I don't feel good and I don't get my circumstances, they don't feel like they're getting any gooder. And so I'm completely conflicted now about, is God good? Am I not good enough to get the good from God? And what is, what is good in the first place? And so the caution, the warning in the text is that we don't be too hasty to define good according to our standards, but we seek to understand good according to what actually is promised for us in the word of God. And here, the good is not an upgrade in your circumstances. It's, a, it's an upgrade in you. You follow me there? You see the difference? The good that is promised for every Christian is not an upgrade in circumstances. It's an upgrade in you. Who, he who began a good work in you will continue in you to work it out. He'll continue in you to perfect it 
until the day that Jesus returns. So with that in mind, Romans 8, 28, what it says is that God uses, he, he uses all things for your good, not that all things are good. Does that make sense? He uses everything that you experience in life from the joys to the pains and everything in between for your good, not that he will, he will just give you good and you'll only have good circumstances in your life. I'll give you an example of this, how God works in this way, not just in your life, but how he works in this way, just it's the way that the gospel works. There's a, a story in Acts 4 where Peter and John, they have been declaring the good news about Jesus, they've, they've healed somebody, they've been hauled in before the Sanhedrin, the religious police essentially, and they're being tried and threatened, we're, we're going to you know, put you to death if you don't deal with this and, and quit talking about Jesus. And they go, ah, well, we're going to keep talking about him. And so they're sent free. So Peter and John gather with some of the first Christians and they begin to pray. And this is their prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. This is like, begins with dear God, right? They were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both who? Herod, we remember him, Pontius Pilate, we remember him, and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Hang on a second. Dear God, all of these wicked, evil, lawless people who set themselves, what? Against your holy servant, Jesus, who crucified God, they did these evil things that your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You understand, like we don't have the gospel if we don't have God predestining the crucifixion. We don't have good news without God sending his son to the earth to be killed. That he would be crucified and buried, that he would resurrect, not by himself, but he would resurrect and bring with him all of those who would turn to him for life and salvation. We don't have good news without God sending his son to die. And so what we can see in, in that like foundational Christian uh, concept is that God will ordain even things that grieve him to the deepest sense of who he is in order to bring something beautiful and wonderful out of it, right? We wouldn't say the cross is good. It'd be a mistake to say the cross is good. We wear them on necklaces, we hang them on walls, we decorate with them. But it would be a mistake to say the cross is good. The cross is horrible. It's not good that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the one who makes us and holds us together. Colossians says he holds all things together by the power of his hands. It's not good that he came and was taken and tortured and beaten and ridiculed and mocked and hung on a cross and killed. That's not good. It's the most horrible thing that could happen. But God ordained the most wonder, horrible thing that could ever happen to make the most wonderful thing that could happen, that by his stripes we are healed, that by his death we may have life and salvation. God will ordain even things that grieve him to bring about good and glory. And that's a good lesson because when we face in our lives brokenness and evil and suffering and struggle, it's not good. And some would have you think that a Christian is supposed to just go, it's all good, and just, just kind of do this, it's all good, right? 
But nowhere in the Bible do we find the instruction or the example to put on a, a game face, to grin and bear it, just put on a happy face and pretend that your troubles don't exist. Nowhere. In fact, we find quite the opposite. And we talked a lot about it last week. We talked about how we are supposed to lament that things are not good. How often? Every time you see something that's not good, you call it what it is. This is not good. But it can be and it will be in your providence, oh God. Because for the Christian, you turn everything, even the most broken situations, into good for your glory. Even, even sins committed against you, God is turning those things in some miraculous, mysterious way. He is turning those things in your life for good. Here's good news. Even the sins that you commit, even the sins that I commit, even the things that I have done that I'm ashamed of, God is somehow in the end turning those things for good for us. How does he do it? I don't know how he does it. How will he accomplish these things? I don't fully comprehend it. But it's included in all things when it says he's turning all things to good for those who loved him and who are called according to his purpose. So we're reminded that Satan and sin are powerful, but God is much more powerful. And he is able to take, I mean, every facet of your life, every experience of your life, every missed opportunity, every struggle, every pain, every success and every failure and everything in between. He's able to turn these things for his glory for your good. And it's not that he's just able to do so. The promise in Romans 8.28 is that he is doing so. Not that he might or he will, but he is doing it. And so when you're in a tight spot or a dark season or when you can't help but trip over your own feet and you're falling and it is your fault. You can be reminded, you can cling to this that God is using even that, all things. He's using this for your good and for his glory. It's the promise that's here. He's going to see it through. What's it look like? What does that goodness look like? What is the goodness? Romans, you know, 8, 29 and 30 kind of begin to unpack 8, 28. Or, or 8, 28 is tied up with what is, is found in 29 and 30. It's like, what is the good that is promised for me that I'm guaranteed to get that God says he will bring about in my life? 29. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would, so Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This makes very clear what God's plan is, what God's purpose is, and how, how goodness here is defined the good that all things in your life are moving toward is your redemption. You follow me there? The good, here's the definition of good in, in, in verse 28. The good that all things in your life are moving toward is your redemption. And what's more, Paul is arguing, this is so cool here, Paul is arguing that the grace that you've put your faith in, that it's in the grace of Jesus Christ, the, the grace of the gospel, if you're a Christian, that the, the grace that you've put your faith in is never risky. 
It's never at stake because before the foundations of the earth, God has been sovereignly working about this plan in your life. God's not scrambling around. Please correct this if it's in your image this way, that as you are tripping over your feet and you are dealing with difficulties in life, God is not running around plugging the holes of your life, trying to make things work out for your good. No, not at all. Your life is messy. Your life is hard. Yes, but this is not a failure of the plan. This is the plan. That he who began a good work will continue working it through everything and every day that you live in the brokenness of a sinful world until Jesus returns. He has a sovereign plan that is being worked out in your life for his glory and for your good. And he's known in all of the steps all along. None of it has caught him off guard at all. It's this sure. He says it begins with calling and it ends with glory. But look, glory's in the what? Past tense. Do you see that? This is how sure Paul is of God's promise. He says it's like it's already done. There's a lot more trouble coming before you die or before Christ returns. But God's sure and steady hand is so on your life. His eyes are so on every beat of your heart. It's as if it's all been completed already because God has it all worked out, glorified. That's the, the state of your life in Christ. Let me be even more clear. What does this goodness look like? Redemption, right? What does redemption look like? Well, verse 29. God works to to make all of us to become conformed to the image of his son, of Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That Jesus would be the beta. He would be the prototype. Jesus would be the first, and the rest would look like Jesus. They would reflect Jesus. They would have the family resemblance. When my brother occasionally visits Legacy Church on a Sunday when his family drives up here uh, from where they live in Midlothian, people in the halls will go, oh, there's there's Kevin's brother, Kyle, right there. I see him because he looks like him. We're not twins. We have three years apart from us. But the moment he walks in, people I've had people say, I thought it was you, and I walked up, and it wasn't, Right? Same thing happens when my dad is here. People don't go, oh, welcome, sir. It's just your first time. They go, oh, Kevin's dad is here because Kevin looks like, looks like his dad and his brother looks like, looks like him. And, and the promise here is God desires to conform every Christian to the likeness of his son, Jesus, that he would be the firstborn of many, many brethren. And so life for us is like a, a funnel The Christian life is like a great funnel where everything in our life, God will use everything in your life to lead you to become more like Jesus, more like him in his perfect love and his grace and his truth and his kindness and his compassion and his generosity. God will use everything in your life to lead you to become more like Jesus. And that's the greatest good that you could ever experience because it is the good that you were made for. It's the good that your soul will be satisfied in and you can spend your entire life pursuing things to try to satisfy that that angsty feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning. And I know you have it because I have it and everyone I've ever met has it. You wake up and you have an angst. There's something lacking, something not fulfilled. You were made to become like Jesus. And so the safest place for you and I to be in the entire planet, the safest place for you to be in your life is to recognize this and be at the very center of God's purpose in your life that is to make you like Christ. 
And everything that you experience, everything that you face, everything that you go through in your marriage or at work or at school with friends and, and then friends that they're not friends anymore and I don't know why they're not my friend anymore. I thought we were friends, but, but now they hang out with these people. Like with all of these things that God is using all of these things to make me like Jesus, to set my mind on, that's a phrase we've seen in Romans 8, to set my mind on the things of the Holy Spirit. What does he love? What's, what's he think about? What's he doing? What are his things? How is he trying to make me more like Jesus through the thing I'm dealing with right now? When we understand that that is God's intention, that is the big thing that God is doing in our life, we begin to look at all of life through this grid. He's, he's seeking to make me more like Jesus Christ in this very moment. That's Paul's goal here. It's to comfort us in the midst of troubles, in the midst of controversy, in, in the midst of division and fighting, in the midst of insecurities, to reassure me by reminding me that I'm a child of God. I've been adopted by God. There's no condemnation for me, for I've been set free by the law of the life in, uh, in, in Christ Jesus, Right? to remind me that I'm able to be honest about my faith and about my struggles, to remind me that he's seeking to make me more like Jesus. Though life is tough, it's not purposeless. You get that? Though life is tough, it's not purposeless. There is a great aim. There is a great purpose in your life. And it's to make you more like Jesus. And this is the, the highest purpose that we could experience in our life because it's the purpose that we were made for. Believe it, set your mind on it, and receive it. Now, this is not easy to practice. It's easy to preach. It's easy to preach, but it's not easy to practice. And we shouldn't be breezy about how we deal with people going through suffering. If a friend comes to you and they're brave enough to talk to you about their pain and about their difficulties, you shouldn't look at them and go, Roman. 28 through 30. <laughs> Praise God, you're in pain. You're looking more like Jesus by the minute, right? It's not wise. It's not compassionate. It's not, not what, it may be true, but it's not helpful in that moment. What should you do? Well, you should lament with them. That's not good. It's not good. You should practice the one another's with them. You should bear one another's burdens. You should love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, right? And in tenderness and in compassion and in humility, help them to, to begin to turn their eyes toward God in that lament, to come to that point where it, it doesn't end with complaint, begin with me, middle me, end me, but begins with my suffering. In the middle, it's about my suffering, but help them begin to see God and that his sure and steady hand is still at work. He's still there for them. He still loves them. He's still at work in them. It's tough to practice. You know, I confess that in the middle of, of suffering in my life, I'm not quick to go, dear God, thank you for the pain. <laughs> Woo, I love it. Would you just double down on the death in my life so that I could double down on the righteousness in me? Amen. No, no, when I'm, when I'm hurting, I pray like, like all of you pray. You know, we go, God, I'm done. I'm sick of it. I can't take it anymore. And God, you better make it change. 
I'm done. Make it better. I'm not projecting, I'm confessing. Right? It's good to hear the declaration of this text. If you are in Christ, you are God's personal project. And the word project makes it sound much less personal than it is. If you are in Christ, God has endeavored to personally attend to every moment of your life, every beat of your heart, every breath of your lungs. His eye is upon you. His steady hand is at work in your life. Ray Ortland said, God's love for you employs the worst of life and the brokenness of this world for his loving purposes for you. Do you hear that? Paul Tripp's devotional, New Morning Mercies, he wrote this, we all need to teach and encourage one another with the theology of uncomfortable grace because this side of eternity, God's grace often comes to us in uncomfortable forms. It may not be what you and I want, but it is precisely what we need. God is faithful and he will use the brokenness of this world, that's your present address, you can find me at thebrokennessofthisworld.com. He will use the brokenness of this world to complete the loving work of personal transformation that he has begun in you. Now, you and I deeply desire the grace of relief and release. And we get a little bit of it here and there along the way. And the great relief and release is yet to come for us talked about that in this series. It's beautiful. It's better than we can understand. But the grace that we need right now is the grace of transformation, of becoming like Jesus. Here's John 1.17. This defines what that looks like. For the law was given through Moses, but, y'all read this part with me. Ready? One, two, three. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He didn't have to war within him. Which one do I lean into in this moment? Should I be a little more graceful here uh, or, or be a little more truthful here? Jesus was 100-100 at all times full of grace and truth in an uncompromising way. And that, my friends, is what I need more of than anything else in this present day is to be so full of grace and truth that it is working out in my life and flowing from my life. This is the best possible outcome for your life. To be made like Jesus, it is the highest potential a human can have. The image of God in me. Even people who, who have no personal relationship with God, who don't even know what that would be like, even though they don't understand it, it's the beat of their heart. It's the pump of their blood. Why? Because we were made for this. To reflect the very image of God, to be the overflow of his love and grace and truth onto the creation that he has made for himself. And we would resound with him in grace and truth. His glory would be seen. And it would be, as it was before the fall, God said, and it's very good, right? This is the good that God promises to work out in your life. And for 
All who are in Christ, God is working all of the things, the joys, the successes, the, the pains, the sufferings, the disappointments, the confusion. It's like a, in the kitchen, a master chef, a master baker who, who brings all of the ingredients together and starts mixing them and mixing them and making something just, I mean, incredible out of them. I don't know if you watch the shows on TV done, where they, they make them where they look beautiful and they taste wonderful, right? But if you entered that kitchen before it was done and you said, I'm just going to isolate and take out some of the ingredients and you said, I'm just going to eat raw flour, it's not good. If you're going to take just the raw eggs and drink them, Rocky did it, but it's not good. I tried it. And I don't, I don't look like him either. So it doesn't work. If you were to take the vanilla extract or the, the almond extract and go, all right, let's give this a shot, it's not good. May have tried it for the sermon, of course, you know. <laughs> but it's when all of those things are, are brought together with the master who really knows what he's doing, that something wonderful takes place, right? And that's what God is doing in the life of every, every Christian. I don't claim to understand the depth of the troubles that you're facing now, and I, I really don't claim to understand what greater glory lies ahead for you. But verse 18, we looked at a few weeks ago, said this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And 2 Corinthians 4, 17 said, for momentary light affliction, it may not feel like light affliction in the moment, right? Yet, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul wasn't trying to minimize your suffering. He was, in fact, the guy who suffered quite a bit, more than, than we might really understand. What Paul was doing is promising, and God was promising this through Paul, that there is not one thing that happens in your life, not one moment that happens in your life that the goodness of God will not one day transform into glory. Not one thing. That's the promise here. And that's why the very next words, when you get to verse 31, which we cut off in the middle, were this. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who's against us? Right? And in a world that is so full of division and anxiety and anger and distraction and disruption, a world that seeks to steal any joy that we have and to jump on it and a world that wants to turn back on each other or else hold each other by the throat and shake each other. This is a hope that we can cling on to. If God is for us, <laughs> who could be against us? Can I pray for you? Let's pray. God, this morning I yeah, I pray for those who are walking through especially hard times right now. That you would help them to trust you. I met with a man this morning that said, Kevin, there's nothing else to do but turn to God. And then he prayed, God, there's nothing else to do, so I turn to you. And I'll never forget that line. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust your promise here in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Help me, help me when I walk through certain things, things that I can't even imagine right now that are coming in my future. God, help me, help us to cling 
to the promise of Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we pray that you would indeed fulfill your promise. Just as you desire, just as you, you will. It's sure, it's certain. That's why it was all in the past tense. So see, he called, he glorified. He promised to work all things together for our good and to bring us into glory for, with you. And for that, God, we, we long for that day. Help us to, to yearn even more for that day. We long for the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. In Jesus' name, amen.